Good morning, those of you at home, and good morning, those of you that are here. This thing, no matter what they say, technology is not your friend. Come on now. There we go. So the Good Friday service, 6 o'clock on Good Friday. I hope all of you are able to make it. It's going to be very special and very solemn, and yes, it'll be 6 p.m. Thank you. So that we don't have, yeah, no. Uh, all right, well, there's a particular subject that has been on my mind quite a bit lately, and so today is yet another one-off message. Um, we're going to talk about the reality of revival. And so we're going to talk about what it is, talk about what the Bible says about it. Uh, frankly, the word revival does not occur anywhere in the Bible, um, although the concept is there. But, but I think most of us, at least those of us that are over 40, which is most of us, um, we probably get a picture in our head when we hear the word revival. And uh, the really chronologically gifted among us probably would picture a big tent like this one um, up here, which there it is. So you would kind of picture, you know, the, the old school revivals that would happen outdoors, uh, whether that was to make people feel more comfortable or maybe it had something to do with, um, you know, just how small church buildings used to be. But whatever the case, when we use the, the word revival today, um, we're probably talking about a service or a few services that are geared toward reviving the people that are in a town or, or uh, you know, maybe spreading the gospel uh, in a more open forum and, and getting Christians fired up. And, and usually it's, it's either a church or it's a handful of churches that have kind of gotten together and, to make this happen. And there's, there's nothing wrong with that, of course, depending on the attitude, though, of, of the people organizing it. It can go well or it cannot go well. If it's, a, if it's an attempt to faithfully spread the good news and encourage the church, then it can be a great thing. But if it's, if it's an effort to make the Holy Spirit happen, then it's not likely to be very effective. Um, and it seems that our most powerful revivals that we know of, you know, whether it's our nation's history or whether it's in the biblical record, they kind of came as a, as a surprise to the people involved most of the time. Um, it might help us, you know, since the word's not biblical, the word revival, it might help us to have kind of a working um, definition, and so I'm, I'm going to call it an unusually powerful outpouring of the Holy Spirit's regenerative work, okay? So that's going to be our working definition today, an unusually powerful outpouring of the Holy Spirit's regenerative work. There's a famous theologian named uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, some of you probably know who he is. He said, revival has two distinctives. It says, those on the inside of the church are raised up to a new level of experience and understanding. And then he says, those on the outside are converted and drawn in. And I think he's right. And I think it's fair to say also that certain signs will accompany a true revival. Now I'm going to lead off with this. A true revival will always be accompanied by miracles. Now I'm aware that statement may bother a few of you. Okay, so hang with me. There's an asterisk. You see that? Okay, so we're going to come back around to this one because not only am I convinced this is true, but I think I can prove it. So stick around. 
Um, we're going to take a look at the next one for now. Anytime that we see a true revival, you can bet that God's Spirit has been working in the background for a while. That is always going to be the case. That may sound a little vague, but usually there's, there's a whole lot of different things that the Holy Spirit has been doing prior to a, a revival happening. He, he sets people and places and things and gets all that orchestrated together perfectly to make the revival happen. And the Holy Spirit's involvement is absolutely necessary, but it's often seen more in hindsight because of the whole surprise nature of it, right? But there's also a sense in which the Holy Spirit is plowing the ground, so to speak. You know, often circumstances prior to a revival look very bleak spiritually. And uh, God's Spirit begins to call uh, or begins to, uh, to cultivate in people a, a holy satis- dissatisfaction. I don't know if that's a, a fair term, but a holy dissatisfaction among his people. And it's not that we're dissatisfied with him. It's, it's we begin to feel a greater burden because of the sin and the grief in the culture that's around us. And, and we also start feeling a greater concern for the state of society. And not just that, but individual souls. And as a result of this, his people start praying. Now, I don't mean just individual Christians praying here and there throughout the day. There's often a concerted effort among believers to pray more fervently, more often, and together. His people begin to pray. We begin to sincerely ask that His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then we echo the prayer from Psalm 85. Will you not revive us again? That your people might rejoice in you. When His people come together and ask for His intervention, God is often pleased to bring to fruition the thing that His Spirit has been preparing us for. When revival starts this way, it's a lot more likely to bear lasting fruit than when we try to do the Holy Spirit's job. I read a really good article last week on revival. Um, There's a, a blogger, her name is Jennifer Slattery, and she said this, In his parable of the mustard seed, Jesus demonstrated that the most powerful revivals begin not in a sanctuary or a tented pavilion, but in a quietly bowed heart that yields completely to God within. The seed of revival, friends, are the humble prayers of God's people. And so with that in mind, um, let's pray together, and then we're going to take a look at some of the the history of revival. God, I just, I thank you so much for this morning. I thank you, God, that uh, your Holy Spirit is at work, Father. I thank you that he's here. And Lord, um, It's such a blessing to be able to preach your word to your people through the power of your spirit. And I pray, God, that uh, that you keep me on on task, keep everybody's mind engaged, and let this truth sink into our hearts, God. We want to see revival. We want to see it happen, Lord, and we know that it starts with your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so if you've been a student of American history at all, chances are you've probably heard of the Great Awakening. Have you ever heard of the Great Awakening? 
Okay, so this, this was in the mid-18th century, so kind of around like the 1740s-ish. And it started in a small congregation in New England, and uh, it was headed by a young pastor. I bet you've heard of his name before, a guy named Jonathan Edwards. Now, he was still pretty young when this began. And it's really interesting if you read some of the history about it. Apparently, uh, there was a, one of the converts that he had, and this small group of converts was a woman who... Um, I can't remember exactly how he phrased it, but it was a really tactful way of saying that she um, was kind of suspect in character. <laughs> she kept company more than anybody else in the, in the town or something like that. And he was concerned that when she converted, because he's still a young pastor, he's immature, he doesn't know how the Holy Spirit works yet, he was concerned that her conversion was going to slow down the conversion process for everybody else. And instead it took off like wildfire. And it began to spread through the colonies. And there was even a, a couple of men, you've probably heard of both of them. George Whitfield was one guy, great Calvinist preacher. John Wesley was another, a great Arminian preacher. And both of those guys were giving open-air sermons to enormous crowds. And there were thousands of reported conversions that happened under their preaching. That was the Great Awakening. But just a couple generations later, America experienced the second Great Awakening. And the, the lead figure at that time was a man named Charles Finney. You've probably heard of him. Then in the mid-19th century, there were three major spiritual movements that happened really close together. One of them was uh, a businessman's prayer meeting that started from one prayer meeting and spread to the whole city in New York. Another was the post-Civil War uh, revival. There was kind of a great awakening there that, that kind of carried over into um, the, the urban revivals that began in, in Chicago under Dwight L. Moody. You've probably heard of him as well, the Moody Institute there in Chicago. Um, then in the, the early 20th century, I'm talking 1904, 1905, and 6, uh, there was a spiritual movement that began in what was known as the, uh, it was the Azusa Street Awakening, is what this was called. Some of you are familiar with that. And uh, there was a, a well-known preacher. That was, that was one of the first times that, um, that pastors and, and, and Christians that were different colored skin were getting together uh, in, in large groups with churches, a fantastic thing. And then there was a, a guy that was very famous at that time. His name was Billy Sunday. You've probably heard of him. He was also a professional baseball player. Um, Billy Sunday preached his first sermon uh, in 19... I want to say it was 1913. No, it was 19... It doesn't matter. Anyway, it was a little after that. Uh, he passed away two years before Billy Graham preached his first sermon. And then, of course, you're all familiar with Billy Graham. Since then, America has experienced the Jesus movement of the late 60s and early 70s, which was headed up uh, under Pastor Chuck Smith. And by the way, uh, if you saw the movie, that's not really how it happened. Uh, Chuck Smith was reaching hippies before Lonnie Frisbee ever came along. Um, but it's, it's, you know, it's good, good Hollywood, so they, you know, they made it that way. It made for a good movie. But then we saw in the 90s, uh, there were a few smaller movements that happened. Um, some of them were, were actually pretty large, like Promise Keepers. There are some more local ones. You've probably heard of the Pensacola Revival, the Brownsville Congregation down in Florida. Uh, a lot of charismatic and, and Pentecostal-type churches were having um, bigger uh, movements and what seemed like awakenings were going on. But lately, there's been a lot of speculation about one particular so-called revival. You guys familiar with it? Asbury, right. On the, until a couple of weeks ago, on the Asbury campus for several weeks, um, there was what was going on. People were calling it a revival. And some folks, they thought it was, it was all contrived because they had been planning a revival that was supposed to happen two weeks after they actually started it. Um, but there are others that believe it's completely legitimate. And then there are still others who think it's a good thing, but they're concerned about it for some, for some other reasons. And, and we're going to talk about that just a little bit later. 
For now, I want us to shift our focus to some of the examples of revivals in Scripture. Okay? You're going to want to get your Bible out. There's going to be a lot of Scripture this morning. I will not apologize for it. <laughs> you should have your Bible. So if you don't, open up your phone and pull it out. Um, the first revival in Scripture that I would like us to look at is when Josiah rediscovers the law in 2 Kings 22 and 23. So if you would, please turn there. Um, I'm going to be jumping past the lists of names, okay, because there's a lot, so just be aware of that. Um, it says, Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. So this is a young cat, all right? It says, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. It says, he walked in the way of David, his father, meaning his great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, and he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. In the 18th year of King Josiah, the king sent uh, the secretary to the house of the Lord, saying, go up to Hilkiah the high priest, that he may count the money that has been brought into the house of the Lord. Uh, skip down here. And let them use it for buying timber and quarried stone to repair the house. So what they're trying to do here is rebuild the temple, which has fallen into disrepair. And Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. It says, and Shaphan read it before the king. And when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded, saying, go, inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that's been found. For great is the wrath of our Lord that's kindled against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book. They have not done all that's according to what's written concerning us. And so they, they went to a, prophet, uh, a prophetess, her name was Huldah. She basically said that God um, was going to make Israel pay for their sin, but he said they're going to get a temporary, or she said they'll get a temporary reprieve for Josiah's sake. Go ahead and skip ahead to verse uh, 1 of chapter 23. Then the king sent, and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. The king went up to the house of the Lord, and with him all of the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the prophets, all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. And the people joined the covenant. And then, I'm not going to read it all because it's really long, but Josiah began to clean house. He said, we're done with all these idols. We're done with these cult prostitutes. We're done with these priests that are worse. He sacrificed priests on pagan idols so that their bones would defile the idols. I mean, we wouldn't you know, probably approve of that today, but nonetheless, this guy was, was on fire for the Lord. And it says down near the end that Josiah did all these things that he might establish the words of the law that were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. Before him there was no king like him, who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his might, according to all of uh, the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. That's awesome. What a great description. Who wouldn't like to have that on your tombstone? I mean, what an epitaph. You were totally sold out to the Lord. I would love to have that on my tombstone. After he died, though, listen, God still decimated Judah, just like he said he would. Because, you know, friends, listen, one leader's faithfulness 
is not enough to cure a nation's wickedness. So why are you bringing that up? I want you to remember that when you vote. Now, don't get me wrong, okay? I will 100% vote for the lesser of two evils because there's no other kind, okay? And not just in politicians. I'm talking about in the human race, okay? You're always going, unless Jesus Christ himself is on the, the, the is, is a candidate, you are not going to be voting for someone that is perfect, Okay? So you'll always be voting for the lesser of two evils. But I will 100% do that. If one candidate supports, for instance, the mass infanticide of unborn children and wants to happily tell my child that he or she can choose their gender, then I'm going to vote for the other guy, even if he has mean tweets. I'm sorry. I'm going to vote for somebody that is, even if he's an egomaniacal potty mouth over somebody that's wanting to murder babies. But he'd still be the lesser of two evils. Okay? I want to make that clear. Whoever you think you're going to vote for in 2024, they are not going to fix this country. Do you understand that? Okay. Back to Josiah. My bad. Um, so after everything that Josiah did for the Lord, his nation still fell to Babylon almost immediately after he died. His son had to deal with that fallout. Because while the people agreed with the covenant, they really didn't seem very personally invested. Now think about that. I'm led to remember, like when you have a group of people in a church that say, we will, whenever you say, will you walk alongside this person? Will you, you know, teach this person about the Lord? Will you be a faithful, uh, in, in a faithful covenant of membership with this new prospective member, and we say we will. Do we mean that? Are we really invested? These events look similar, these scriptural events, to our definition of revival, but I'm not 100% sure they qualify because... It was clearly an individual revival. Some of the leadership got it. Josiah got it. Did it really translate to the people? I don't know. It, it, it shares a very important connection to our next passage, and that occurred almost a century later. Um, so we'll talk about the parallel in just a few minutes. Uh, the next awakening that I want to point to and then have us read together is, is uh, it's after the return of the exiles. This is in Nehemiah chapter 8. So if you would, please flip to Nehemiah chapter 8. Would you, would you do that? Would you turn there? The context is that these folks had recently arrived back from Babylon and they were rebuilding the city that their ancestors had lived in. Some of them were old enough that they had lived there too and that Nebuchadnezzar had completely destroyed the city, removed every stone from atop every stone, okay? And so they came back there and they're getting together for something very important. We'll see what it is in just a moment. All the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard. In other words, people of an age where they're capable of grasping the concepts. On the first day of the seventh month, and he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday. You think I preach a long time? All right. Early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. 
and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. See, they're not just saying, oh yeah, we agree with this covenant. They're listening, okay? They're listening. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. Uh, skip down. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, a large group of men helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. These men read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. This is one of the first places in the Bible that we actually read about expository preaching. I think that's neat. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. That, that's different. That's different from the previous story, isn't it? They didn't just say, yeah, okay, we'll do that. They, they wept with godly sorrow because of their failure to keep God's rules. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So it's saying, in other words, be grateful that you have God's law to obey, and then share what you have with others. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and make great rejoicing because they understood the words that were declared to them. By the way, they didn't just understand them. I mean, look what they do. On the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe, in order to study the words of the law. So they're like, we have not had enough of this. Let's get back together and discuss this some more. So they begin to devour the word together, and they found it written in the law of God that, that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. Now, just very quickly, what that means is they were supposed to build tents out of brush on top of their roof or outside their house and live in them for a few days. That is not convenient. Is it? No. And yet, the people, it says, went out and brought them and made booths for themselves. So, so this is a wonderful example of what a revival should result in. But I want you to hold that thought, too, because we've got two more samples. We'll come back. We will. Okay? Of course, whenever a Christian thinks of revival in the Bible, what's the most obvious chapter you think of? Acts what? Acts chapter 2. It's got to be the Pentecost, Right? And it's the first time we ever see the Holy Spirit descend on the church. Of course, it might be fair to just call it a revival because it wasn't a revival. It was literally the first time this had ever happened. The Holy Spirit descended on God's people in a unique and special way. We're going to take a look at the first few and the last few verses of Acts 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they, that's the believers, were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them and, and rested on each one of them. And, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. They began to speak 
in tongues as the other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. That, that word "other" is important because these are actual languages. You know what happened, right? While many people recognize the gospel being preached in their own home languages, like they're hearing this and going, "Whoa!" There are other people who decided, you know what? They're they're just drunk. How do you observe the work of the Holy Spirit in such an obvious way and ascribe it to alcohol? That's what they did. They started to mock the disciples. So Peter stands up. He gives the first Christian sermon ever, which was incredibly powerful. And the result is equally impressive. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves, I love this part of the just listen. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. It's four things. Okay? And awe came upon every soul, and the wonders and signs, many wonders and signs, were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. This was not communism. This was not socialism. This was not coerced. This was voluntary people lovingly sharing what they had with those in need. Okay? And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. This is an amazing story. Our, our third revival story this morning, and yet they're all very different from one another. Have you noticed that? They don't all look the same. Notice? This, this third one's perhaps the strangest of them all. Um, actually, this fourth one may be even strange. It's the shortest, too. You, you might remember this one because it's just from a few months ago when we were at Acts 19. We're going to call it the Ephesian occult purge, okay? If you would flip to, uh, to chapter 19, we're going to look at verses 17 through 20 together. This part of the narrative is after Paul had been preaching the gospel in Ephesus for about two years straight. God was doing miracles through Paul. In fact, folks were even taking things that Paul had touched and they were bringing them to other people so that they could be healed of diseases and so that demons would be cast out of them. And it's amazing stuff. But there's this group of dudes. You remember them? They're Jewish guys. They're seven sons of a guy named Sceva. And they just decided, you know, we're going to try to do the same thing these Christians were doing. And they got beat up by a possessed guy. You remember that story, right? And so what happened there? This was big news. Luke says, and this became known to all of the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who are now believers came. I, I love this. Confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. They counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. That's over a million dollars in today's you know, money. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Again, very different story, but it has something in common with the others. And here we go, okay? In all four of these stories, God's word is either discovered or rediscovered. Every one of these stories. And then his word is preached either to God's people or to those who are about to become his people. 
in Josiah's case, uh, Shaphan found the law shoved in a quarter, you know, in, in, in this dilapidated temple. It's just over here somewhere. He, he digs it out. Can you imagine? They've had the temple all this time and not a copy of God's word that anybody was reading. Do you take your Bible for granted a little bit? So they find the word of God in the temple. Nehemiah's case, Ezra read the law. So many people heard it, some of them probably for the first time. At Pentecost, the gospel is preached. And it was in Ephesus too already. For two years, we see that it had been preached in Ephesus. And since God's word has the power and authority to, to confront and, con and convict and, and comfort and even convert you know, this is the power of God's Word. It's His Word through which the Holy Spirit brings people to an understanding of sin and righteousness and judgment. And then in every case, some more fully than others, the people obey God's Word and repent of their sins. In every case. It's part of the reason I think the first one is a little sketchy because Josiah certainly did. It may not have been the greatest example to give you guys. So I want to, for just a minute, while you're writing or whatever, um, let's return to the question of, of the Asbury Revival. A friend of mine named John Wilkes, he attended uh, Asbury for a little while. I don't know. He put in his two cents. I liked how he said this. I'm going to quote him here. So John, if you're listening, quoting you. Um, we have no way to know if what's happening is a real revival or not. Not yet, at least, he says. We will only find out when it ends. If those kids are truly seeing Christ in that chapel, then they'll see him in the hungry, the thirsty, the naked, the sick, and the prisoner. If their worship is not just empty offerings, they will do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with their God. He left that part off, but, but that's, he said, humbly. If they are truly receiving divine love, they'll spend the rest of their lives loving the alien, the fatherless, and the widow. That's how we will know what all this means. Until then, we're just speculating. Now, I thought his words were wise, but incomplete. And so I replied to him by saying, number one, I agree with you. And number two, if it's a true revival, it will result in massive amounts of repentance of sin. The renouncing of wickedness, the renouncing of individual sins, as well as calling out the wickedness in the world. Because see, if the Holy Spirit is producing revival, we ought to see two different kinds of repentance, and they are distinct. First, people should repent of their sins of omission, like my friend John was talking about. Okay? They should begin caring more about justice and mercy and serving those who are the least. And perhaps most importantly, as Everett mentioned to me the other day, we were talking about this very thing. Spirit-led revival results in sharing the gospel. Can I get an amen on that? Amen. Evangelism should be the result of the Holy Spirit at work. If there's no evangelism, how is the Holy Spirit even a part of it? I don't know. I would just encourage you to, to write that down because I think one of the greatest sins of omission is that we don't preach we don't preach Christ enough in our daily lives. You know, we don't tell people that God sent his son into the world to die on a cross so that we might be forgiven our sins. We don't tell people that he rose from the dead and he lives in those who place their faith in him. But we ought to. 
We ought to be evangelizing because no revival is complete without it. And on top of that, people that are undergoing spiritual renewal should repent of our sins of commission. Sins of commission. In other words, if you're committing known and intentional sin, stop it. Stop. That should be a no-brainer, but, but sadly, it doesn't seem to be anymore in our society. You know, re- repentance is, is it's a sign of true revival. And if there is no repentance, it's not a real revival. And if, you have, if you're committing sexual immorality or greed or filthy talk or, or a hateful attitude or dishonesty or whatever, stop it. You know, all, all of the, without repentance, all the, the, the worship songs and all the rituals and, and all the sacrificing that you do is just religion. God expects repentance and obedience from His people. He will not tolerate disobedience forever. How many of you are familiar with that passage that says, um, your sins are like scarlet, but they shall be white as snow? You know, you like that one, right? Though they're red like crimson, they shall become like wool. I love that passage, but it's not normally read in context. And so we're going to do that. I'm going to encourage you to do that with me. Go to Isaiah chapter 1. Go ahead and flip there. We're going to start at verse 16, but while you're flipping there, I want to tell you that most, most of this chapter is God telling the Israelites that their worship makes him sick because their lives show that their worship is a lie. Okay? And this is, it's really long, so I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just going to, he, he kind of sticks home the point really hard of verse 16. So he says, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. He's like, sin over here, and oh yeah, we're so religious. Those two things don't go together. That's what he's saying. He says, your new moons, your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, he says, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, he says, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, he says. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall become white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. He wraps it up by basically saying, I'll bless you if you're obedient, and I will annihilate you if you're not. It's pretty straightforward. So listen, this isn't to make you depressed, right? Because of how far you fall short of God's perfect standard. I mean, we, we could all get depressed if we're really going to dig into that, right? That's, that's not the point. We, we all fall short. We're all going to continually fall short until the day that we die. But you should never be content with where you are, okay? You should never be satisfied with your spiritual life where it is. Because, the, listen, repentance in the church is a clarion call to the world that what we believe is true. It's not just for your sake that you repent. If you look like the world, you're not glorifying God.
you may remember I brought up um, that Martin Lloyd-Jones. I can't say his name right right now. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He said that one effective revival is that those on the inside of the church are raised up to a new level of experience and understanding. That's what we see in these biblical stories. We see God's people raised up to a new level of experience and understanding. For for instance, near the end of of Nehemiah 8, we read, All the assembly of those who returned from captivity made booths. Remember, we talked about this. This is not convenient. Made booths and lived in booths. For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to the day the people of Israel, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. So so, so this, this new level of obedience was completely fresh for them. And were they bitter about it? Were they complaining about the inconvenience? No, on the contrary. It says, and there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law. They kept the feast seven days. On the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. See, when God's people do what God commands, there's always a blessing in it for us. There's always a spiritual upside for it. Now, on this side of the cross, we're not bound by the law of Moses, but we're bound by the law of love. And when we obey, we see blessing. But as Dr. Lloyd-Jones also said, um, we're not the only ones who benefit from revival, but also those on the outside are converted and drawn in. The change in God's people draws outsiders. And this isn't speculation. I mean, look at our New Testament examples. Acts 2, it says, the result of spiritual revival was that the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. You know, in Acts 19, the result of this great show of repentance was that the word of the Lord continued to uh, increase and multiply. I may be getting that wrong because I walked away. Um, But uh, increase and prevail mightily, he says. So friends, when we do what we're supposed to do, here's the thing. The Holy Spirit uses that, that obedience. He uses that as an instrument to bring people to salvation. Do you remember in John 12 uh, how Jesus said, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto myself? I want to share something with you because I was thinking about that passage while I was writing this sermon. It occurred to me, um, maybe God gave it to me. Maybe it was just something, maybe I'm reaching, I don't know, but... But what Jesus said there, that happens in in four different ways. First, Jesus was lifted up from the earth upon the cross, and that's what he's referring to in context. And in doing so, he says he draws all people to himself. However, he was also lifted up from the earth from within a tomb when he rose from the dead. And then he was lifted up from the earth into heaven during his bodily assumption. And finally, perhaps it's not too much of a stretch to point out that when we lift him up above the noise and distractions of the world, once again, he draws people to himself. Think about it. Are you lifting him up? We're almost done. Um, But I want to quickly go back to the fact that revival is always accompanied by miracles. Now, before a war breaks out between the cessationists and the charismatics in the congregation, I want to remind you that no revival is complete without repentance, and that repentance, and particularly conversion, is a miracle. Do you understand that? It's a miracle. 
Remember how in Acts 11, the Christians in Jerusalem proclaimed, to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Or in Acts 16, uh, before Lydia accepted the gospel, Luke tells us the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. It is always a miracle when someone comes to Jesus. Always. It's the only way it can happen. And so today, if, if, if you're part of that miracle, if you've received faith in Christ today, if you're saying, you know what, there is something to this, and I never realized it before, I want to encourage you to, to come forward and confess your faith and be baptized and start your walk of obedience to the Lord, because that's what you're supposed to do. That's what you're called to do. And if you're already a believer and, and you're hoping that God would bring revival to this church or to this nation or to the world, be encouraged by 2 Chronicles 7.14. You're familiar with this. If my people, read this with me. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Do you think that's true today? Do you believe that if we humble ourselves and pray and seek His face and turn from sin, that He'll give us forgiveness and heal our land? I do. And if you do, I, I'm, I'm, let, me, let me leave you with this final thought. This is from that same article. Listen carefully. Jennifer Slattery says, Slatterly says, God rarely does something through us that he hasn't first done to us. God rarely does something through us that he hasn't first done to us. So, friends, pray that God will revive you. Pray that God will revive me. And let's be that, that spark that God uses to set hearts ablaze for the sake of our nation and for the sake of his kingdom come. We're going to have a, a few minutes of, um, of a time of invitation. And if you feel led in any way by the Holy Spirit of God, to, whether it's to, for the first time, profess your faith and be baptized, or if you've already done that and you want to join this body, uh, we'd love to have you. If you just want to ask for prayer, if you need someone to lay hands on you and pray, um, we're here. We're available for you for this. So don't miss a chance.